0: The following sermon, by our guest speaker, is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, it has been a joy for me to be here, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed hearing the messages as well. So, uh, it's been a great blessing, and I hope, uh, hope that continues tonight. I want to look at the raising of Lazarus tonight. Familiar story, and in this case, uh, it is... Martha, who, who really seems to show a conflict between her faith and her doubts, and we'll look at that. I've been thinking about this lately because, uh, I mean, Rick already told you I'm an old guy. I'm 60. And something happened within the past couple of years where it seems like uh, I realized I'm doing a lot more funerals than I am weddings. And in fact, there was a, a span this year between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, where I think I did more funerals. I preached at more funerals than, uh, than I had in the entire year previously. And I'm constantly uh, being reminded of how short life is. Those of you who are young, you're in your 30s or 20s or whatever, trust me, it goes by way faster than you think it's going to. And um, <laughs> it's short. It's short. You do the math, I look back on the past 15 years, it doesn't seem like that long ago. But as I look ahead 15 years, I think I better start looking into nursing homes. You know, it's not really that bleak, but in, in recent weeks, I have literally sat by the bedside of people who were dying and have been contemplating the fact that death is a consequence of sin. And it is a universal reminder of how evil sin is. The ultimate fruits of sin and death are sadness and sorrow and a feeling of loneliness, and the reality that this is a difficult life. Every one of our lives ultimately will be touched by the sadness and tragedy of human loss. And unless we're fortunate to be among those who are alive at the Lord's return, every one of our lives will ultimately culminate in death. Death is a horrible enemy. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, Scripture recognizes that death is an enemy, and when you sit and watch someone dying slowly, you come face to face with the fact that death is a formidable, tyrannical, and universal enemy. The grief and the sadness of death is almost unbearable, and if, if you thought about it in human terms, you might be tempted to become melancholy and despondent. It is sad. It is awful. It does make all of life seem utterly hopeless. And yet, Scripture gives us hope and reason to rejoice, even in the midst of the gloom of death. And that's what my heart is full of tonight. And then in the midst of thinking about the sorrow and sadness of death, Rick, I've got to figure out how to work this. Rick persuaded me to use... No, he's been telling me how great it is to use the iPad. And what happened was I printed out a set of notes. I can't get it to turn the page. Uh, this is exactly what I did not want to happen, Rick. I do. How do I get it off the uh, highlighter pen so that when I swipe, it changes pages? So here's what happened. While, while he's doing this, yeah, you see what I mean? Oh, uh, you know what, because you're in... You're in highlight mode. You got to take the highlighter off and put it on what? Maybe that. Yeah. Okay. So I printed out. Thank you. I print, I printed out. I printed out a set of notes actually that had all the text in King James because occasionally I'll pre- preach in places where uh, they insist on using the King James version. I didn't realize that till I got in my hotel room this afternoon. I was looking at it. This is King James, and so I. I didn't have the means to print it out again, so I took the version that has the ESV and put it in my iPad, and, and it's nicely highlighted now because I've been swiping it. it... <laughs> anyway, that's a good interruption on all that talk about death, which admittedly is gloomy. And it's interesting to me, uh, one of the most interesting facts about this whole story of Lazarus is that even Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. And yet, it was in that very same context that Jesus made one of His most glorious promises ever about the ultimate victory over death and hell, His personal victory over death and hell for all of us. It was in the wake of Lazarus' death that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die That's John 11, verses 25 and 26, and I want you to turn there with me. John chapter 11, and let's look at this passage. The whole episode of Lazarus' death and resurrection is really one of my favorite New Testament accounts. This passage sums up for us why we don't need to despair, even though life is so full of sadness and death. Let me set the context for you. John 10 describes the Feast of Dedication. In Jerusalem. And there, Jesus had stirred up the murderous wrath of the Jewish leaders because He claimed clearly to be God. You recall that they took up stones even to stone Him, and they were so determined to kill Him that they they were going to do it right then and there, but it was not His time. And John 10 verse 39 says, they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. What happened was He miraculously eluded their grasp. Since it was not quite his time, according to verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. He's essentially in hiding, not in hiding out of craven fear. He was awaiting the God-ordained time, and since he was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, it was important that his death occur at Passover, And so he went to the same region of the wilderness, actually, where John the Baptist Baptist had gone uh, to minister just a few years before that, and thus Jesus finished his public ministry in the very same place where he had begun. Notice the testimony of those who who were there in verse 41. They said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So... This was a time of great fruitfulness in Jesus' ministry. This particular period in Jesus' ministry mirrored the ministry of John the Baptist. In the same place, he was preaching in the wilderness, great crowds coming out to hear him, but even more than John, unlike John, Jesus would heal them and do miracles. John just preached to them. Jesus did that, but he also healed them and did the miracles. And Scripture tells us very little about that time. It's not... The details of the miracles, the details of what He said and what happened during that era are not recorded for us, but it must have been one of the most spectacular times in Christ's ministry. If you'd been there, you would have thought, it's great to be a disciple. But then something happened that would abruptly bring an end to that ministry in the wilderness and ultimately spell the beginning of the end of Christ's earthly ministry altogether. And it's... it's, starts, that's the very starting of John 11. So look at John 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill. Did you realize this is the first mention of Lazarus anywhere in the Gospels? Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, but that Lazarus was already dead, so it's not the same guy. So here, for the first time, we meet Lazarus, this man, and discover that he was someone whom Jesus dearly loved, verse 3. Now, we don't have time tonight to look at every verse in this narrative. I wish we could, but there's just simply too much here. So I want to do a sort of broad overview of the chapter and call your attention to three great truths about Christ that we find here that are given to us specifically to bolster our faith. One is His sovereignty over all of circumstances. The second is His compassion over the plight of our sin. And then finally, third, we'll examine His power over death. That's the order Scripture presents these truths to us. So we'll start with His sovereignty over circumstances. Throughout this whole chapter, you see again and again clear proof of Christ's absolute sovereignty over every detail of everything that occurred. From the disciples' perspective, it didn't look like that, especially at first. This whole event seemed like an unfortunate accident, because there they were in the midst of their most fruitful ministry that they had ever enjoyed with Christ. Most of them were from Galilee, as Christ Himself was, and you'll recall that Christ's Galilean ministry was not particularly well received. Yeah, He had had multitudes follow Him, but they left as soon as He started teaching things they didn't like. He cast... Demons out of some lunatics in Gadara, and the response of the people there was to ask him to leave. He preached the gospel in Nazareth, his hometown, and the people tried to throw him off a cliff. He ended up cursing the cities of Galilee at the end of Matthew 11. And now he's, he's gone to Judea and been chased from there across to the other side of the Jordan River, and multitudes are coming out to see him. And hear him, and many are believing. And here's an interesting detail. If you compare this with John 128, this location in the wilderness is the very place Christ had first met Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip. And Scripture expressly states that Andrew was one of John's disciples, and uh, it's likely that at least so were Peter and Nathaniel and Philip as well. That's why they were there in the first place. They had made themselves disciples of John the Baptist, and and no doubt they had high expectations from the time John the Baptist baptized Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They knew He was the true Messiah. And their expectation, I believe, must have been that Jesus would ultimately reveal Himself, manifest Himself as the true Messiah. He'd given hints of this, He'd said it expressly to the woman at the well in John 4, but for the most part, he didn't go around announcing to people that he was the Messiah. But they knew it, and they were waiting for him to unveil himself. And from their perspective, as he's out there in the wilderness, right where John the Baptist had ministered, and Jesus is doing miracles to prove that he was the Messiah, they must have thought he's on the verge of revealing himself. The full potential of his ministry at last is beginning to be realized, and everyone was talking about it saying, chapter 10, verse 41, everything that John said about this man was true. And just when things are going that well, Lazarus gets sick. Scripture says, chapter 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with her ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill so the sisters sent to him to Jesus saying lord he whom you love is ill now bethany is just 2 miles east of the temple in jerusalem verse 18 says uh, in the king james version it says 15 furlongs if you you'll find in most of the modern versions that's exactly correct but who knows what 15 furlongs is it's about 2 miles and if you've ever been there, you can probably picture it in your mind. If you walked out of the front of the temple, in those days it was open territory. Now it's a massive graveyard. But if you walked out that direction and kept walking, your path would take you through the huge eastern gate, up that hill. You'd be facing the Mount of Olives, which is really more of a hill than a mountain. And on the other side of the Mount of Olives, just on the, if you, as you crest that hill... About a 40-minute walk from the front steps of the temple is Bethany. And so a trip to Bethany would take them right back into the firestorm of opposition, right into the teeth of Jesus' most hostile enemies, the Jewish leaders. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, when the disciples heard Jesus say that, they must have breathed a temporary sigh of relief because they knew when Jesus said something like that, he knew what he was talking about. They'd seen many displays of his omniscience before this. He could, he could look right into the soul of a Samaritan woman and tell her her life's history. Jude, or rather, John 2.24 says this, Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He could heal a centurion's servant from a distance, Matthew 8. And John 9 records that he even, he even knew the reason a man was born blind. So, if Jesus said, Lazarus is gonna, not going to die, they believed Lazarus was not going to die. But look at verse 4 again. When Jesus heard it, He said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we know, because we know the story, that that doesn't mean Lazarus wasn't going to die. It means only that the ultimate purpose of this sickness was not his death, but something greater, something beyond that. Jesus knew that, and he was in control of every detail that occurs, and you're going to see that. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That sounds kind of incongruous, doesn't it? He loved them, so he stayed where he was for two more days. I've tried to use that on my wife. She doesn't buy it, that that kind of inactivity reflects love. But this was a deliberate delay. This is proof that Jesus himself is orchestrating all the timing of all these events for his own purposes. And then after he said to the disciples, let us go... uh, Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again after two days. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? They knew it was a dangerous place. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. That's cryptic, isn't it? The disciples didn't get it either. They said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he meant taking rest in sleep, and so Jesus told them plainly, verse 17, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, notice, Jesus knew Lazarus had died. Again, this whole narrative is told in a way that underscores the absolute sovereignty of Christ over all of these events. He is in control from the beginning. And although from the disciples' standpoint, all of this looked very accidental and random and like Jesus saying one thing and then another thing happens, He's in absolute control. And that's why He says in verse 15, For your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. He's doing this. He's engineering these events so that He can help them confront their doubts with stronger faith. If Jesus had actually been present when Lazarus died... The disciples' impression that you know, things are spinning out of control would have been exaggerated even more. Imagine the doubts that would have assailed the disciples' minds if Jesus had actually been standing by Lazarus' bedside when he died. This way, at least, they could see. None of this came as a surprise to him. Even though he wasn't there, he knew what happened. He knew the na- nature of Lazarus' sickness, And he knew precisely the moment when Lazarus died. Plus, he was about to do something a thousand times better than healing Lazarus from an illness. And this was going to strengthen their faith a thousandfold. This was Jesus' purpose. And although the disciples didn't understand that, they couldn't see what Jesus was doing, it was very clear to them that he was acting sovereignly. He is orchestrating every detail right down to the timing of everything. And from their perspective, what was happening didn't make any sense, but there was no denying that he was in control. And that's exactly how you and I need to learn to view the sovereignty of God. If you think you first need to understand God's purposes before you can embrace the truth of divine sovereignty, you will always struggle against the doctrines of divine providence and the sovereignty of God. It will always be a problem for you if you insist on understanding God's purposes up front before you embrace that doctrine. God rarely explains His purposes to us. He just assures us that he's in complete control, no matter how chaotic things seem to be, and he asks us to trust that all his purposes are good. And when you get to the point of being able to do that, live not by explanations, which you don't get, but live by the promises that you have been given, then the doctrine of divine sovereignty suddenly begins to make sense. Now, Thomas hadn't reached that point. He's still too much of an Arminian. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. He always seemed to express the skeptical point of view. You know, Arminianism breeds doubt, and and that was the case with Thomas. Verse 16, so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. He's going to go and get himself killed. Let's go with him and take our medicine. He's convinced that things are totally out of control and that Jesus is walking into something even he won't be able to control, and they're all going to die if they go back to Jerusalem. He should have seen that Christ was arranging every detail of every circumstance, but somehow Thomas missed that truth. And you have to deplore Thomas's theology at this point, but you can sure admire his spirit, right? Despite all his doubting, there was never any question about his devotion. He loved Christ. And even though he thought Jesus is walking into something he, didn't, he couldn't control, he was going to follow Christ, even if it meant death. And you have to admire that. Now, why did Jesus delay when he heard his friend was sick? Try to, try to answer that from the disciples' perspective while they're on the way to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Israel and made the trip from the Jordan River near Jericho up to Jerusalem, you know that is a long, steep, treacherous, difficult climb through some desolate terrain. It's still desolate and dangerous today, and it was at least a full day's journey. If you're in really good shape, it takes a full day on foot. And you know the end of this story, so it's easier for you to see what Jesus' purposes were, but imagine the doubts that must have assaulted the disciples' minds. They must have been wondering, has Jesus lost his sanity or his compassion or, at the very least, his common sense? First he told them Lazarus' sickness wasn't unto death. Then he waited two days, and then he told them Lazarus was dead. In all their experience, they had never seen Jesus act that way. must have seemed to them like suddenly he's vacillating He's out of control. And when they arrive, they're in for an even bigger shock. Verse 17 says, Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, do the math on this. It means Lazarus was probably already dead when the messengers first reached Jesus to tell him that Lazarus was sick. Because if you count back, it's a full day's journey, certainly less than two days' travel from Bethany to Jordan. Verse 6 says, Jesus had waited two days in the Jordan after the messengers brought him the news that Lazarus was sick. So, like three, at the most four days have passed, Lazarus was probably already dead by the time those messengers came to Jesus and told him Lazarus was sick. And, and you know Jesus, so you know he knew that. What do you suppose the disciples thought when they put all of that together? Verse 19 says, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. There had no doubt been crowds of people coming to comfort the family for four days. You know, a Jewish funeral, the burial takes place on the same day as the death. It had to be that way by law. And so the mourning goes on for days after that. This funeral is already four days into progress. And Jesus is a latecomer to the funeral. He could have been there earlier. He knew the very moment Lazarus died, and the disciples knew he knew that, and yet he doesn't arrive until four days after Lazarus' death. They must have been questioning Jesus, his compassion. They'd seen his sovereignty on display in all of these circumstances, so they knew he was ordering the timing of the events, he could have done something to stop this tragedy from happening. Everybody knew that. Even Martha and Mary are going to both tell him that. He could have stopped this. But he purposely delayed, and the disciples knew it was on purpose. You think they were questioning his compassion or his wisdom? We all tend to do that, don't we? You know? We ask questions, and we do ask these questions. They're natural questions. Questions that arise out of the fallen human mind. If God is sovereign, why is there so much pain and suffering? If God is in control of all things, why does He sometimes permit the wicked to prosper and allow righteous people to be persecuted? In fact, go back to the beginning, why is there evil at all? If God is sovereign, every one of us has wondered about those things from time to time, but here we get a glimpse into the answer to all of those questions. God sometimes allows evil for a while because He has a greater purpose in view when He conquers the evil. If God permits bad things to happen, He always has a good purpose in mind and He's able to make all things work together for good. He promises that all His purposes are good. And that's the very heart of one of the most cherished promises in all of Scripture, Romans 8, 28. We know that those who love God for them all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. We know that, right? But we forget it at times. Christ hadn't lost his compassion, far from it. And in fact, this brings us to our second point, the second great truth here about Christ's character that is on display throughout this passage is his compassion. His compassion over the plight of our sin. That's point number two. Let's look at how this shows Jesus' compassion. Lazarus here is is sort of the perfect picture of the plight of the sinner. He's dead. And he's not only mostly dead, he has been four days in the grave. He's beginning to decompose. And that is the exact picture Scripture uses of the Sinner apart from Christ, not just sick, but thoroughly dead, rotten. You find that in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. As sinners, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, totally cut off from God, without any hope whatsoever. Scripture calls us children of wrath when we're in our sins. It takes a divine miracle to raise a person like that from the state of death. A dead person can't raise himself. He can't even hear or respond to anything. Now, Jesus had already proved His power to raise the dead. You remember Luke 7 records how He raised the young son of a widow. Luke 8 records the raising of Jairus' daughter. Both of them had been dead less than 24 hours. In Lazarus' case, decomposition had already begun. And so the situation seemed utterly hopeless. Now, you'll remember from Luke 10 that Martha and Mary were two completely different personalities. You remember that? Martha was the one always busy and fussing around while Mary was content to sit at Jesus' feet. And so, it's completely in character here for Martha to go rushing out of the house to meet Jesus while Mary stays in the house to continue mourning with the other guests. And look at what happens. Verse 20, So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. That's amazing faith, isn't it? I mean, she is hinting already. That she expects, to do, she expects Jesus to do something here to remedy this situation. And she believes he can do it. She can't quite vocalize what it is she expects. And so Jesus tries to say it for her. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Do you hear her doubts fighting against her faith? She's typical of the anxious believer. Really, all of us fit this description at times. Her faith was real. It wasn't sufficient to quiet her distress. It was not that she doubted Christ. She clearly believes in Him. She loves Him. But her mind is constantly assaulted with questions. How shall this thing be? Why did this happen? People like that who focus on the questions often forfeit the comfort of God's Word because God's comfort, as I said, lies in promises, not in explanations. Questions like how and why belong to the Lord. And instead of explanations, He gives us promises to sustain us. And explanations, the reason for that is this, explanations don't require any faith. Promises are only good for those who have faith. But Martha's faith faith is weak, And so, when Jesus says the very thing she's sort of hinting that she longs for him to say, that her brother will rise again, her inclination is to put a pragmatic meaning to his words. She assumed he couldn't possibly mean Lazarus would rise today. And so, she put the promise off into the far-off distant future. And therefore, she forfeited the greater part of the comfort Christ was extending to her We tend to do that, don't we? We want to believe the promises, but we don't really lay hold of it. Christ's reply to her is one of the famous I am statements that you find throughout John's gospel. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, notice how compassionately he deals with her. There's no rebuke for her weak faith. He merely affirms for her his deity and his power over death. He stresses that, his power over death. And he tenderly prompts from her an affirmation of this great truth and her faith. And then he apparently sends her to get married. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, that is when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village. He's just on the outside border of Bethany. But he was still in the place where Martha had met him. So he waits there for her to come back. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So, here's what happens. Martha comes in and whispers to Mary privately, the teacher's here, he's calling for you. They both get up and leave, and the mourners who are there to comfort them think, she's going to the grave, we better all go. So, they follow her. Now, all of this takes place outside the house, apparently on the outskirts of town, near the place where Lazarus was buried. Martha approaches Mary secretly, maybe because she's aware that Jesus' life is in danger. He doesn't want to announce that He's in the Jerusalem area. If He made a public appearance anywhere near there, somebody would, and you're going to see this later, somebody would quickly go and tell the Jewish leaders, get them after Him. But there was no covering it up. When the people in the house saw Mary leave so quickly, they assumed she's going to the tomb to mourn, and protocol demanded that they must go with her. And so, unintentionally, Mary draws all these people to witness the miracle that's about to occur. And notice how Jesus repeatedly expresses his compassion. Again and again, verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was, and she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, those were the exact words Martha said to Jesus in verse 21. And in fact, these were the first words both sisters said when they saw him. You, you get the idea, don't you, that the two of them had discussed this between themselves. They knew Jesus. They both loved him, and they agreed together, if Jesus had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And they're heartbroken that he wasn't there. He could have been there. They sent messengers to bring him, and he didn't come until late. So she's weeping. She's mourning not only over the loss of her brother, but over her confusion at why Christ delayed his coming. And when Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, they're the mourners, so they have to weep when she weeps, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how He loved Him? Now, a lot of things to notice here. Notice that Mary fell at Jesus' feet. We meet Mary three times in the Gospel accounts. Luke 11, John 11, and John 12. And in each case, she is at Jesus' feet. That was her place. In Luke 11, she's at His feet listening to Him. John 12, she's at His feet worshiping Him. And here she's at His feet sorrowing. And his response is a sharing of her sorrow, which both amazes me and thrills me. Verse 33, it's amazing. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now think about this. Christ is sovereign God incarnate. He is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he knows it. He's about to turn this funeral into a festival of life. So, why does he first weep? What is it that so moves his spirit that he groans and weeps and mourns with his friends? Have you ever thought about that? You know, there are people who would say this kind of compassion is incompatible with divine sovereignty. We saw his sovereignty in the first eight verses, and I know people who would say that if God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners, then the tender appeals He makes in the gospel cannot be well-meant. I know of Calvinists, I'd call them hyper-Calvinists, who think that because God has sovereignly chosen some and passed over others, He can't possibly have any sincere goodwill towards those whom He permits to suffer the consequences of sin. And when He invites them and pleads with them to come, that cannot possibly be well-meant, so they say. I don't agree with that. The idea is that if he's sovereign, he can't possibly express any sincere wish for things to be other than they are. And I don't believe that's the case because time and again, you see God lamenting the effects of sin and grieving over the destruction of humanity. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He has sovereignly permitted things that don't please him. And the compassion... He expresses, for the plight of fallen humanity is a sincere compassion. It couldn't be otherwise, or we'd have to charge God with insincerity, which is tantamount to dishonesty, and we know that God cannot lie. Here in John 11, you see side by side, starkly together, deliberately put together, both the sovereignty and the compassion of Christ, both in bold relief. We're not to think there's any conflict between the two. But Christ, who has been sovereignly in control of all the circumstances surrounding these events, all the way up to this point, nevertheless expresses the sincerest kind of grief and groaning and weeping over what has come to pass. Verse 35 is well known as the shortest verse in all of Scripture. It's the easiest one to memorize. I think think you get a freebie on that in Awana, you know, in the first year. Everybody knows it, but few people appreciate how profound this is. The Greek word for weeping in verse 33 is klio. It's a word that signifies loud wailing. In Mary's case, it surely reflected a sincere kind of grief. Her weeping is loud and deeply emotional and thoroughly sincere. In the case of the other mourners, it could be just a show of weeping for effect. A common practice at Jewish funerals in those days was to hire professional mourners, women who would weep aloud just to sort of set the atmosphere. You know, we do the same thing at funerals, only we use a quiet organ to set a somber tone. But it's the same idea. They preferred the kind of mourning where people howl out loud. And that kind of weeping might be sincere or it might not be. But the word for weeping in verse 35, where Jesus wept, it's a different word, Dakruo, which speaks of shedding tears. When the mourners weep, John's focus is on their wailing. In Christ's weeping, the focus is on the tears. It's all about the sincerity of his compassion, the reality of his anguish, the genuineness of his sorrow. How dare anyone suggest this is not real? This is bona fide grief, and the fact of Christ's sovereignty doesn't diminish the reality of his grief one bit. So what is he weeping over? It couldn't be merely the loss of Lazarus, because he's about to bring Lazarus back to life. So what is he mourning about? I think I know. I think he's grieving over the effects of sin on people whom he loves. He's sorrowing over the ravages of evil. He's identifying with those whom He loved, even in their anguish. For as Scripture says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I like the King James Version of that verse, Hebrews 4.15, where it says, Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Meaning, he's experienced that feeling himself. And here you see it. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And here he feels the full weight of anguish over the human condition in sin. It's the human condition that grieves him. It's the effects of sin. And he is deeply and sincerely moved by it. And I dare say, his sorrow was the greatest sorrow of anyone at that funeral. The spectators saw his tears as an expression of his love for Lazarus. And there's an element of that there. But notice verse 37. Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? There's that same theme again. It's the same thing the disciples wondered. The same thing both Martha and Mary had vocalized. And now it comes from the mourners, and coming from them, coming from Martha and Mary, it was an expression of faith. Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. That's an expression of faith, weak faith, but faith nonetheless, they knew that no one ever died in Jesus' presence, and they were sure that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would still be alive, but that same complaint coming from unbelievers is sounds like an expression of disbelief and disdain for Christ. They were actually questioning either the power or the goodness of someone who would allow such a good friend to die if he had the means to stop it. Why did he do this? If he's going to cry over Lazarus, why didn't he stop it? That's what they're saying. Now, one thing is obvious in all of this, right? No one, no one there expected a miracle now. To all who were there, the disciples and Mary and Martha and the crowd of mourners, everyone who was watching this thought this situation seems utterly hopeless. Jesus is weeping. That that must have only magnified their sense of despair. But now, having displayed both His sovereignty and His compassion, Jesus is about to display one more characteristic in all its glory, and this is number three, His power over death. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, this was no superficial grief, came to the tomb. So, He leaves the place where He is. He goes to where Lazarus is buried. Scripture says, it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone Now Martha, Scripture says, always the pragmatic one, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Here's where I liked my King James notes, you know? King James Version says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Which is probably close to what she actually said. You can't do this, she said. Don't take the stone away. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account, on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I think that's interesting that Jesus would say that, by the way. I pause there. Because he's, he's acknowledging that, that his public prayers have a didactic function. He's teaching the people who are listening. He's not instructing God or telling God or asking for anything uh, from God that, that they didn't already have an understanding between themselves about. But he said, I say this on account of the people standing around so that they will believe. He's teaching them, even in his prayer. And when he had said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! One of the Puritans wrote famously that uh, if Jesus had not specifically named Lazarus, there was enough power in those words to have emptied the whole cemetery. Now, try to picture this in your mind. This funeral is now four days old. These people would be nearly exhausted from so much mourning, because again, mourning at a Jewish funeral didn't involve, you know, sitting on a, Couch, reminiscing and having refreshments. They were they were mourning actively, and this had been a long ordeal. Their grief was nearly spent, and suddenly that long night of grief gives way to a brilliant dawn of joy. Verse forty four: The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. You get the picture here. He's wrapped up like a mummy. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had, had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, again, I sometimes see humor where nobody else does, but I think this is a funny picture. Lazarus would have been barely able to waddle. The grave clothes were several layers of linen, all packed with aloe and embalming spices. And after four days, that mummy suit would be stiff and extremely confining because they tied those cloths tight. And there was a cloth tied over his face so that he would have been unable to see where he's going. He, He finds his way to the front of the grave, and everybody is so stunned by this turn of events, that Jesus had to command them to untie Lazarus so that he could move. It's funny. Trust me. (laughs) And you can only imagine the celebration that followed. Uh, Can you picture what it must have been like to go instantly from the deepest level of grief and despair to the joy of having your dead loved one restored to life before your very eyes? This was the most spectacular of all Jesus' miracles, apart from his own resurrection. And it demonstrated in a very graphic way, in an undeniable way, that he, Jesus, holds the keys to death. But notice the twofold response of the crowd. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some believed, and some hated Him more than ever. You see that kind of response throughout the life of Christ. It's it's not difficult to understand how someone witnessing a miracle of this magnitude could believe. What's incredible is that someone who saw it only hardened his heart against Christ and went and tattled to the Pharisees. But such is the poison of sin. It makes our hearts wicked, it renders us unable to love Christ. And that's why we have to acknowledge our own spiritual bankruptcy. That's why we must look to God to renew our hearts. That's why we are forced to seek divine grace as the only possible remedy for, the, for our sinful condition. Because we have that same potential in every one of us. And in fact, let me close by saying this. It would be wrong of me to assume That everyone who's here is already a believer in Christ. It would be wrong to assume even that everyone who attends this church regularly is a true believer in Christ. And I want to make sure that you see the gospel in this passage that we've looked at tonight. Notice that in verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, "'I am the resurrection and the life.'" Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, what is he promising there? Because he's not promising all of us the kind of resuscitation he gave to Lazarus. Martha understood what he meant. This is a simple promise of eternal life to all who believe. And what I want you to notice is there are no preliminary demands. There are no legal conditions here. And in fact, the only biblical prerequisite to this kind of faith has to do with recognizing your own inability to merit God's favor. You have to confess your need of a Savior, your sinfulness, and confess that you cannot please God with your own righteousness, but realize Christ holds the key to death because... He has pleased God, and those who are in Christ by faith can know with certainty that He has fulfilled the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. And more than that, He's taken our sin and borne its penalty, and then He declared victory over sin and death forever by raising Himself from the dead after three days in the grave. That's what the gospel is all about. And Jesus is saying, if you believe, you'll never die. It really is that simple. And I pray, if you're here as an unbeliever, that God will open your heart to believe tonight. Let's pray. Lord, what a thrill it is to read of Christ's triumph over death and how it was displayed so powerfully in this miracle that he did, raising Lazarus from the dead. We thank you for the promise that's built into this narrative, the promise that all who trust him will never die. And I pray for those who may be present tonight who've never trusted Christ, that you'll open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and implant within them hearts of faith. And all of us pray, Lord, we believe Cure our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.